0: What if I told you this morning that you would have to do something so hard that you thought you were going to die doing it. But as I told you that, I also would tell you that you would not die but in the end you would be fine and you would come out on top. Would you trust me? I mean, I'll receive the reality that if I told you such news, you'd probably be like, could I ask a few other people first? Could I phone a friend? Could I check in with another person before I make this decision? Eric, don't get me wrong. You're a nice guy. I hope some of you at least think that. I believe you probably want what's best for me. I'm really glad to hear that you have such confidence in my ability. Nevertheless, what you're asking me to do could possibly end my life. So before I make such drastic decision, let me maybe do a few reference checks on this request. That's understandable. And understandable because you would understandably be thinking about the stewardship of that opportunity, corresponding subsequent consequences that could come from that. But not if I told you, not if a family member told you. What if the Lord told you? What if the Lord asked you to do something that seemingly seemed to be so difficult, so insurmountably, seemingly impossible, that no one seemingly in their right mind would advise you to do this. Nevertheless, it came from the Lord. Would you do it then? These are the moments where we're pressed into the reality of what we profess to believe, namely that there is a God and he can be trusted, and actually what we really believe there is a God who I hope can be trusted. We don't seemingly want to admit these things publicly, but yet we nevertheless demonstrate them consistently at many different times. Well, this morning, we come to an example of this where we see this in the book of Joshua. If you've not been with us since we've been in the book of Joshua, well, welcome to Grace Church and welcome to Joshua. Now, to the defense of many of you, we have admittedly not been in Joshua for the last six weeks, two weeks due to our Advent time in the month last several weeks of December, the 24th and the 31st of December, the first two weeks under the ministry of Pastor Ronald and Pastor Chris and the texts that were in there in Titus and Ephesians, and of course then last week with our time in Philippians in light of the great celebration of which we enjoyed together for our five-year anniversary. But we return to where we have been and we are looking forward to now being back in again. And that is the book of Joshua. If you've only been with us for a few weeks and have missed any of those previous sermons, perhaps even this is your first week, let me, if I may, just briefly have you listen as I explain to you some major points that we've covered already. As I do this, you're welcome to even find Joshua in your Bible. If you're not familiar with where it's at, it's not the person seated to your left or your right. It's in a book in the Bible. It's the sixth book in. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, the first book after what's known as the Torah, the Pentateuch. It's the the passing, if you will, of the baton, as we saw on the very end of Deuteronomy to the beginning of Joshua, from Moses to his successor, his disciple, if you will, joshua we saw that in joshua chapter 1 verses 1 through 9 this repeating reminder of how the lord was calling joshua to trust him but also what joshua needed to do in listening to him as it says in verse 8 of joshua chapter 1 the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth you shall meditate on it day and night you should be careful to do according to all that is written on it And at that very minute, the very earliest verses within the book of Joshua, we are introduced to a theme that repeats itself throughout the book that we'll even see this morning in Joshua 10 and Joshua 11, and that is the reality of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Joshua 2, we met a fascinating character that honestly gives so many of us hope, either for ourselves personally or for others that we know relationally. And that is no one less than the person of Rahab. You could say it differently Rahab went into rehab. She was a former prostitute, known for doing so, but trusted in the Lord. And by her acts of trust, demonstrated by the decisions she made, she not only provided salvation physically for her family, but also spiritually, as we would later see in Joshua chapter six, eventually in Matthew chapter one. She's no one less than in the descendant of Jesus himself. Being the great grandparent of King David. That's a major flex, if you ask me. Rahab is a remarkable person. We see then the people of Israel crossing the Jordan River after this promise of God's blessing them when they enter into the promised land. We see them coming up against the city of Jericho, doing what none of us would counsel them to do, which is to basically have a seven day worship service. Like, listen, I'm all for praising God, but we got to get busy with fighting. God's like, why don't you let me take care of this one? We see that and the reality of that and how that plays itself out, even the messenger of the Lord and that respect. And then we see, honestly, the challenges that came upon them. They go from seemingly these moments of great victory to the moments of defeat. They won at Jericho and then they lose at Ai. This reality of how they did not go before the Lord and how they t- trusted not in the Lord. Then they learn that lesson, you would think, and so then they have victory. They renew themselves to the covenant. That's how chapter 8 ends. And then in chapter 9, they're deceived by the Gibeonites. And it's exactly what they says here. They make a promise, and it says in in Joshua chapter 9, verse 14, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Friends, it's worth just highlighting for you. Literally, in Joshua chapter 8, They have just come from, if you will, summer camp for the Israelites. They have just had an amazingly intense time in the Word of God. You think if there's anything they would know to do and would want to do is to talk to God about all decisions. And yet, in the very next chapter, in chapter 9, they trust in their own intuition and experience. They make a decision without talking to the Lord about it, and it costs them greatly. They're deceived by the Gibeonites, And that brings us now to where we are this morning, chapter 10 and 11, as they've now learned that they've been deceived and the consequences that will come from that. Chapters 10 and 11, if I could summarize for you this morning what I want you to walk away with, it would be the following. The Lord calls you to not fear, but you still must fight your battles. Let me just say that again worth repeating, worth you writing down, worth you remembering, text to a friend. The Lord calls you to not fear, but you must still fight your battles. This morning, we're going to be learning lessons about the nature of obedience, the sovereignty of God, the assurance of victory for those who trust and follow him. All right, so... Not with the intention to read all of these two chapters for the sake of time, but if you would, let's do a cursory overview of chapters 10 and 11. Look with me as soon as we begin here, and I'll just set up the first five verses to kind of get a feel for it, to put us back on the text since we've been out of it for a few weeks. Picking up on the fact that the Gibeonites have now made a, a partnership with the Israelites, and they're gonna be protected as Joshua promised, as he was deceived, nevertheless, but he promised. Look at the response in Joshua 10, verse one. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities because it was a greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmath, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. All right, now, interesting here this king of Jerusalem mentioned in chapter 10 verse 1 this is the first time interestingly in the Bible that the city of Jerusalem is mentioned well I don't want you to kind of get a feel for what's going on here geographically because understandably this would be lost probably on every single person in this room unless I explain this to you you have to understand what's happening here which is the people of Israel have crossed the Jordan River they've had victory initially at Jericho eventually at Ai and so they're doing quite well. So they've got some victory in the southern part of this promised land. Then what ends up happening, though, is that the Gibeonites, which actually are from the northern part of, of Jerusalem, so they're north of where Jerusalem is, by about six miles, they have now made a covenant with Israel, that Israel will not attack them now that they've learned that they're actually not from some far distant land. What this means is that these five kings are like, wait a minute, this is not looking at geographically. They've got land north of us that's secure. They've got land south of us that's secure. They've got land west of us that's secure. We're not looking pretty good. If we don't go up against them now, we're going to lose this battle. But they don't want to go up against the Israelites. They want to go up against the Gibeonites. They want to teach them a lesson about betraying them. So then you have what begins to take place In Joshua chapter 10, verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill of the country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, all the soldiers, and all the mighty men of valor. And they basically get ready to go to battle. What I want you to see here is the significance of what happens. What happens next is a repeating theme throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the book of Joshua. It happened, it was said earlier, and it's being said here again in chapter 10. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. This is a significant comment being made here to Joshua. Joshua. Because Joshua recognizes he made a covenant with the Gibeonites. You can imagine he'd be tempted to break the covenant since they deceived him. But yet he has kept his word to this covenant. And now he's got to keep his word and actually put his own people's lives on the line to defend these deceivers. And here he is. He gets his forces and he marches at night to get up to where they are. That's exactly what takes place in verses 7 and 8 and following He's marching at night to these unsuspecting Canaanite soldiers because they're not expecting the people of Israel. They're expecting the Gibeonites who are already back home. And you have to kind of just recognize what it says here. It's in verse 10. Israel pursued them along the road going to beth and cut them down all the way to Azekah and to Makeda. Going south from Gibeon, where the battle began, there was a 10 mile ascent to Beth Haran. From that point, the road would drop down. And here they are chasing after them. And what you begin to see is two miracles take place. God said in verse 8, Do not fear them, I have given them into your hands. And then they go into battle, and then two miracles take place. First one's verse 11. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, known as hail, as far as Ezekiel, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, you then have to imagine what happens next year. Joshua does an unprecedented thing. He asks God to prolong the day. And this is one of those miracles in the Bible that people are like, really? I mean, is this sort of like a poetic representation? Look at verse 12. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And then he's like, hey, if you don't believe me, read it yourself in the book of Jashar, and then he says, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for a whole day. And then the most understated verse here, there has, not, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. My point here as we'll come back to this text in a minute to learn the lessons, is just to give you a sense of bearings in chapter 10 and 11. I want you to get a feel for what's happening. People who thought they are going to have peace are now at, at war. The people who are now at war are winning greatly. The people of Israel are winning greatly, but not because of what they're doing, mainly, but because of what the Lord is doing. The Lord is doing miraculous things, and He's doing it. Through the means that God has given Joshua as he intercedes for them in prayer. And, you know, people have imagined what exactly the text is talking about here. Some have said, well, actually, this is a poetic representation. The sun didn't literally stand still. The moon didn't literally stop. The earth didn't sort of move, stop on its axis. Others have said, no, there's actually reality here, which is that the sun was moving normally, but the light was refracting miraculously, so it gave them more light than they normally could have, or suspend the moon longer so they could come in a surprise in the dark of night." Or there's more of the plain reading of the text, which is to say what exactly it says, which is the sun and the moon stood in its place for a full day longer than normal. Even for some of you Christians, you might think, this seems a bit far-fetched. This seems more maybe Jewish myth. Friends, let me just pause you, if you're tempted to kind of go into that territory of consideration, to just recognize the whole Christian faith, is built on one fundamental claim of a miracle. That is the resurrection of the Son of God. So just to put things in context, God specializes in the miraculous. He specializes in blowing the minds of the natural for the supernatural to prove He alone is God. It's not as if man is sort of getting God to do His bidding. It's that God is choosing, according to His sovereign grace, to do His purposes. So friends, trust me. As Jesus says himself, if he can lay down his life and raise it up three days later, making the sun and the moon stand still, small matter by comparison. And that sort of thing kind of hinges accordingly for you and I to recognize. So we come into the text and we see this and we go, wow, this is remarkable. Now, as I said, we'll come back to it. I just want to make sure you have context for the text because then this sort of argument continues, the sort of display of history continues of what takes place here. Chapter 10, verse 16, the five kings fled. They're like, man, we're losing the battle. They hide themselves in a cave. They basically go beat all of their fortified cities. Then they capture the five kings. And then they do something that seems mean-spirited. It seems like you're like, can he not just acknowledge you've got him beat? He actually brings them all out. And he lays them on the ground. And he has his soldiers put their feet on their necks. Necks. I mean, it's bad enough they've already Beating them and you're probably going to kill them. Why do you have to put your feet in the necks? Because it was a statement that they would have been making in that cultural context that what had been promised to them was going to be accomplished. That the enemies of the Lord would be laid down with consequence. That their, their necks would be at their very feet. That's the defeat here for these kings. And you see what ends up taking place here. And again, Joshua says to them in verse 25 of chapter 10, speaking to the Israelites, he says, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So you, you see how Joshua's like copying, pasting here, right? The Lord tells him, do not fear them, verse eight. Then, the Lord, then Joshua tells the people, do not be afraid or dismayed. He's like, as I have learned, so I want to teach you. And that brings us then into what happens next, which is the reality of what takes place in the southern area. All of Israel passed before him. And then, friends, it looks like it gets worse. Chapter 11, you have another group of kings. Look at it, verse 1. Jabin, king of Hazar, heard this. He sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshva, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and then the lowland, and then Naphtarah on the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Basically, this is roll call for everybody left in the land. Verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in a number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And then here's the Lord again, verse six. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them. Now, Jewish historian Josephus, not a Christian, writing this story of what took place later on would say that the combined forces of the Canaanites here represented in verses 4 and 5 would be 300,000 foot soldiers, 100,000 soldiers on horses, and 20,000 chariots. This military battle would be the greatest engagement of Joshua's career. The numbers themselves are daunting. In addition to this, this is the first time that Joshua would have gone up against chariots, having never had them in battle yet have never even seen them in battle yet. And yet, God says to Joshua, don't be afraid. And what ends up happening is it says, to summarize it in verse 10, Joshua turned back this time, captured Hazar, struck its king with the sword, for Hazar was formerly the head of all this kingdom, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction." And then the key is in verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua so that Joshua did. He left nothing undone for all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, we can see in verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come up against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed. Just as the Lord commanded Moses... And again, verse, 30, uh, verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had, given, had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Now, you right now might be thinking, especially if you're new to Grace Church, you're like, wow. Okay, so you guys, reading the Old Testament, crazy times, what exactly are we supposed to learn from this? we all supposed to go buy swords now, get shields? Rename our kids. What, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, this is where I want to take a second lap around it, and I want to help us learn four lessons. I think each of these are significant, and they're going to come right from the text, and I hope they're going to land right in your heart. Lesson number one. Fear flourishes in the imagination of what is not known, but faith flourishes in the certainty of what is known. Fear flourishes in the imagination of what is not known. Faith flourishes in the certainty of what is known. Now, let me explain that statement. Let me show it to you from the text. The most repeating command in the Scripture, surprisingly to a lot of Christians, is to not fear do not fear. God commands to our weaknesses. He knows our struggle. And the way that fear works is fear takes a grain of possibility for what might be supported in history and places it in the future and declares it with certainty. But it's an imagination. Imagination. Fear operates on the fearful imagination of what could be, what might be, what possibly will likely be, and it lives in light of that, and so it drags all of the energy that God's given you for today into the future, and you've got no energy to do what God has called you to do today. Contrast that with faith. Faith flourishes in the certainty of what is known. What do I mean by that? What is known is that, yes, there's a future that's unknown, but there's a God who's in that future who is known. And what's also known is that God's not asking you to take responsibility for the future. He's asking you to take responsibility for the present and walk by faith today. Not tomorrow, today. Jesus would say himself in Matthew chapter 5 or chapter 6, rather, that tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you bringing that back to the text why do i say this because of how commonly either the lord is saying to joshua or joshua is needing to say to the people do not be afraid do not fear and friends honestly faith seems like the logical right response i mean let's just run the numbers The numbers are there are more people in this battle against the Israelites than the Israelites can single-handedly count. I mean, just again, let me just review those numbers with you. There are 420,000 soldiers up against yours. A 100 of them have horses. 20 of them have horses in a chariot. Translation, they got the upper hand. And God's like, I got this. But every step along the way, God does not leave them very long to see how he provides. In other words, notice, if you will, in chapter 11, when he says to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. But what was coming out of chapter 11, chapter 10, when God did what? God provided hail against enemies, and God provided uh, the sun to stand still so they could complete their battles. In other words, it's not very far that you have to go in your past to see God's provision, to fuel your faith for your future. This isn't an exercise in insanity. This isn't an exercise in logical disconnected. This is a historical reminder of how God has been there with you every step along the way. Here's the reality, you do not know the future, nor do I. You're tempted to imagine a future with failure. God wants you to believe in a future with success not success in yourself, success by faith in him. This is often how we have to continue to remind ourselves, even with the question, what if? All right, what if? As has been said by others, even if. Even if. Even if you come up against seemingly insurmountable obstacles, that will not be a surprise to God. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. Now, here's what I think is interesting that I don't want you to miss either. When God talks to Joshua in chapter 10 and chapter 11, do you notice that God does not tell Joshua anything new? He tells him what he told him before. In fact, just to remind you, you don't have to just turn there. I'll turn there for you. But in Joshua chapter 1, as he says significantly to him, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. Here's the Lord saying, do not fear. Chapter 10, verse 8, I've given them into your hands. Here he is, chapter 11, verse 6, do not be afraid of them, for I've given them over to them. Here's often what I think we sometimes miss. We're often wanting a fresh word from God. We often just need an old word from God. Christians usually don't struggle with learning new things. They struggle with remembering the old things that they've already learned. And Joshua just needed to be reminded of the old truths that God had already made to him, the old promises that he had already declared to him. This is worth you and I reflecting on because oftentimes we don't need to be told anything new. Even when we give counsel to each other, we sometimes feel like, man, I feel like I need to say something fresh and new. You just need to remind them of the old truths, who their God is, who their relationship to their God is, The third lesson we can see from this, particularly in Joshua 10, God can do the miraculous and often uses your prayers to demonstrate it. God can do the miraculous and he often uses your prayers to demonstrate it. I think what's interesting, in case you missed it, is in chapter 12, look how Joshua prays and he prays publicly. Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel, and he said, in the sight of Israel. And then he makes his prayer. And then the answer, the end of verse 13, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for a whole day. I think what's remarkable to see, God did not need Joshua to pray for him to work. But God chose to work through Joshua's prayer, and he did so for all the people to make the connection. This wasn't some private prayer of Joshua. No, Joshua's willing to go public. He's willing to say, hey, um, I'm about to have a conversation. Can I get everybody's attention here for a second? I'm about to say something to the Lord. You might want to listen to this. Now you think, well, that might be presumptuous." But his presumption was not in his entitlement to be able to have God do his bidding like God was his genie in a bottle, completing all of his wishes. His confidence was in God can do whatever he pleases and he might please as he's promised to do to provide victory, to provide it this way. And so he prayed accordingly with specificity. Friends, what do your prayers sound like? What are you specifically praying for? How are you seeing God specifically be glorified in the answering the specific prayers that you're praying. I think sometimes as Christians, we're tempted to pray like these, God, like these Nike prayers, right? You know, the phrase of Nike. What's the motto of Nike? Just do it. Not God, if you'll just, uh, God, if you can just, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, Lord. And I just, it's on my heart to pray to you, God, if you could just God, if if you would mind, I, I know I have no right to ask of you, but God, if you could just, Lord, I pray for your glory. If you, for your purposes, God, if you could just do it. All praise to you, God. And this prayer is sponsored by Nike. Do what? What do you want God to do? What? What bold prayers are you praying with specificity? What what, what prayer meetings are you in? That you're saying, "Hey, let's pray. Let's pray for God to do miracles." I pray that God would use me this year. That God would use me. He'd be pleased to use me to lead two people to faith in Christ. God, I pray this year that you would help me in my financial situation. I am struggling with difficulty. I do not see a way out. But God, I believers. God, I pray that by the end of this year, I'd be in a different place. I'd have my debt paid off. Lord, I don't know what those things are, and by no means am I trying to try to get you to understand something perverse about god which has got us somehow hamstrung to your prayers like i wish i could but you won't ask that's not the lord but the lord often chooses to demonstrate his sovereignty through your prayers as a means of glorifying him and encouraging your faith to keep at it keep praying keep asking keep pleading Like Hannah who prayed for so long to hear her cry, God, give me a child. It's important to say that prayer does not promise the answer that you ask for. It does promise though, that God will answer. According to his will and his time and his way, you can be confident he will hear you and he will answer you. He will be glorified. And sometimes the normal and sometimes the supernatural abnormal. This takes us to our third lesson. Divine sovereignty does not contradict human responsibility. It emboldens it. Divine sovereignty does not contradict human responsibility. It emboldens it. I mean, I think what's remarkable here is that there are these promises throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Joshua, Where God's like, hey, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. I'm even just reminded of Joshua chapter 5. The commander of the Lord's army, the theophany of God appears in human form as a warrior. And he says in verse 14, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have done. And Joshua fell on his face and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And he basically recognizes he's... Indeed, on holy ground. And he continues in this conversation. In verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand. Over and over and over, God is declaring his sovereignty. He is God. He does whatever he pleases. Nothing, as Daniel says, can stay his hand, can keep him from doing what he accomplishes. Yet this does not encourage human irresponsibility. It emboldens human responsibility because it gives us confidence that we're not wringing our hands wondering, will it be accomplishing anything? It actually gives us confidence it will be accomplished because God's will will be accomplished. And so in Joshua chapter 10 and 11, what do they do? They go to battle. Friends, there was real swords, real sweat, real blood, real fighting, real hills marching up, real horses, there was a real battle with the confidence that the Lord was with them. And you and I have to live the same life today, but maybe expressed in different areas. God is calling you to your areas of occupation. He's calling you to your areas of human relationships. He's calling you to your biblical obligations. He is calling you to act in responsibility with the time and the energy and the money and the opportunity he has given you as an expression of your confidence in his sovereignty. That not only through your prayers, but also through your actions, he will work. And this is what he does. He works through them, provides great victory. I think what's significant to recognize is Joshua was all in, and he wanted the people to be all in. Verse 25 of chapter 10, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus says the Lord, will do to all your enemies against whom you fight, in verse 26. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, hanged them on five trees. There was responsibility. Joshua held nothing back. Can I ask you a question? Is there anything in your life that you're holding back from the Lord? Are you implicitly bartering with God right now? There's certain things you want to give him, but certain things you want to keep back for yourself. We saw how that worked for Achan. It didn't. What man did not know, God knew, and God addressed that in Achan's life. We see that earlier in Joshua chapter 7. But the question for you and I is, are we all in, willing to do whatever God asks, willing to go wherever God calls, with a desire to completely surrender to the Lord? Perhaps it's not possessions you have to give up. Perhaps it's reputation. Perhaps it's comfort. Perhaps it's the promise of relationship you hold out. What is it that you still hold your hands around? The Lord is saying, can I please have that too? Trust me. I think about even the reality of evangelism. Be bold for Christ. Go into your places of where you live your family, your friends, your coworkers. Tell them about Christ with no fear of what will happen because the Lord saves. And because the Lord saves, that gives you confidence that he uses you as the means by which that is accomplished. As it says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. A fourth lesson we can learn from Joshua 10 and 11 And it particularly is highlighted at the end of chapter 11. God has not forgotten a single promise he has made to his people. He will keep every one of them. God has not forgotten a single promise he has made to his people. He will keep every one of them. In Joshua 10:11, we witness the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham regarding the land of Canaan. That was a promise made back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. That's many generations before Joshua was even born. And here he is keeping his promise. This battle underscores the importance of obedience and faith and God's faithfulness, how, how God indeed did exactly as he promised when he would decide to do it. Friends, when you are up against overwhelming challenges, do not neglect the promises of God in the scripture. I think the challenge for some of you here this morning is not how to live with more prayer in your life, not how to take more responsible action with the decisions you have to make. I think the most fundamental decision for some of you to make is, have you actually surrendered your life to Christ? Do you understand that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ? Is what 1 Corinthians says. It's in Christ that his promises are yes and amen. In other words, God extends the promise to his people because they are his people. And his people are those who have trusted in his son for the forgiveness of their sins. Everybody wants a deity who exists to be like their genie who provides for their wishes. But they want to maintain their own sovereignty and autonomy where they can maintain control over such deity. That God does not exist. Only the one who exists is the one who creates all rules over all and will judge all according to his righteousness. And all those who have believed in him will not be punished, but will be pardoned. Not because they deserve it, but because he granted it because of their faith in Christ. And therefore, he makes a promise to them that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing will separate you from my love that I have for you in Christ Jesus. That's what he says in Romans 9. That is a promise that's outlasting your own physical lifetime. I challenge you this week. Read this Bible. Look at the promises that so often the scripture is described in here and ask yourself, are those promises mine in Christ? They are if your faith is in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. They are not if you're still trying to barter with God with your good works. For those of you who are in Christ, see the hope that's here the same hope that joshua have is the same hope that we can have still today these promises that he makes reminded that victory comes through obedience trusting in the sovereign god seeing that even in our own battles today that we come up against opposition that seems insurmountable and yet victory is guaranteed because of what christ accomplished paid for sin penalty is removed and the promise of eternal life and his presence with us forevermore. So it changes this community of people. A bunch of strangers now become family because we share in the promise of Christ. And that's the example we see today, not just in Joshua from years ago.